Welcome to Grain IQ. I'm Chad Moyer. Grain marketing is a critical piece in keeping your operation profitable. Now, in order to stay profitable, you have to sell your commodity at or above your break-even. Seems pretty simple, right? So who determines what those commodities are worth? How do other people buy and sell futures and options? That's where the Chicago Board of Trade comes into play. Elaine Cup joins us for today's conversation. She is a market analyst and the author of Mastering the Grain Markets, How Profits Are Really Made. The reason we brought you on today, for this episode anyway, is to talk about this monster that is the Chicago Board of Trade. Uh, it's owned by the CME Group. If you had to give a definition for the CBOT, what would you say that is, Elaine? Well, the short definition, I mean, it's it's the mechanism for coming up with a benchmark price for commodities. And the long definition is, you know, it's a market exchange for futures contracts. And futures contracts are, like I mentioned, the benchmark price for commodities. And the CBOT specifically deals with grains and agriculture commodities like that. But you mentioned that they're owned by the CME Group, which is used to be called the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, which was the exchange for trading meat contracts and other options. There's also the NYMEX, which trades cotton and various other commodities, um, your sugar and coffee and cocoa and such. And there's the ICE Exchange, which is headquartered down in Atlanta, but it's really global. I mean, there's all kinds of exchanges across the earth trading all kinds of different commodities. But here on this podcast, I can see why we are mostly concerned with the CBOT headquartered in Chicago. That's the place for grain benchmark pricing. And and we should mention, too, that there are other agencies, other uh, trading platforms in other areas around the world that do the same thing. They have the same purpose of trading grain futures contracts, right? Yeah, and it, it's particularly uh, notable and relevant to the wheat market. So wheat, as you know, is grown everywhere across the earth. So it's really interesting. That's the one that I think of or the most common one that I would look at as a market analyst is the Paris milling wheat futures contract. So there is a benchmark price for wheat that's grown in Europe, and we can directly compare that to these prices of wheat that are traded in Chicago. The typical Chicago wheat futures contract, that's representing soft red winter wheat, the kind of stuff that's grown more in the eastern corn belt. Uh, they also now have bought the Kansas City Board of Trade, the KCBOT, is now owned by the CBOT or the CME. So that is also where you trade the Kansas City hard red milling wheat futures contract, which is, represents more of that hard red wheat, that winter wheat that's grown in Kansas and Nebraska and the High Plains. The Minneapolis Grain Exchange is still independent, and that's got a futures contract that's representative for spring wheat, of course, hard red spring wheat. There are some varieties of wheat that aren't traded by futures at all. But you're absolutely right to point out that we can sort of look at how the prices at these various locations compare to one another on any day to the next, and that kind of keeps each other honest. It's also really relevant for like soybeans and pork and lean hogs because there are these futures contracts that are exchanged in China. So the, the Chinese futures contracts, you can directly see whether the price of soybean oil in China is staying neck and neck with the price of soybean oil in the United States. And if one gets too high and the other is too low, somebody will sell the high one, buy the low one and bring them back into relationship with each other. Elaine said another important thing to note is that some of these grain exchanges are not just in high producing areas, but also in high use areas. 
a lot of those Chinese contracts are exactly that case. I mean, China grows a lot of its own grain, obviously it's its own corn, its own soybeans, produces its own soybean meal, produces its own pork and hogs, but they're also looking at that benchmark price as a buyer, as an importer of those commodities. Let's uh, kind of come back to uh, what's most relevant for us here in the middle part of America anyway, and that is the CBOT, the Chicago Board of Trade. Who are the players in the Chicago Board of Trade? Who makes up the CBOT? Well, everybody. So uh, I guess I should, it'd be nice to have a um, a report in from every week, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. So the regulatory agency for futures trade in the United States, they put out a report that shows who is holding what proportion of, of these contracts that are traded. And for corn and soybeans, invariably, the biggest part of the market is bona fide hedgers. So that is farmers and elevators and grain trading companies and grain shipping companies, people who are putting on a hedge to lock in a price for entire train loads of grain or entire ocean shipping vessel loads of grain that they're shipping across the ocean. Those are the ones that are making up the vast majority of the volume of trading that happens in these futures contracts. Something like 60% of the soybean futures market, for instance, is typically bona fide hedgers or commercial trading activity. But there are also what we call speculators. So people who are just trading in these contracts, these are just financial contracts. They're, they're not necessarily going to receive physical grain for them. But these speculators, this could be hedge funds, it could be index funds, it could be just people who are retail traders who are trying to make a buck because they see have an opinion about what the price of corn, the price of soybeans may do from one day to the next. That's also a segment of the market. Um, those index funds that I mentioned, those are a segment of the market. Some people that just trade spreads, that's a separate segment segment of the market. But as far as who's in it, it's, it's mostly um, bona fide hedgers. And we don't always feel that way. I mean, I think the markets tend to blame the speculators for driving up or driving down prices or making things too volatile. And that can definitely be the case for some of the other commodity markets, especially like um, feeder cattle, because it's a, a smaller market. But for the grain, honestly, uh, the speculators have some influence, but they're not the biggest influence. So what is your opinion? Why is it important to have a variety of different people that are involved in the market at any given time? Well, we can go back to the original purpose of these. You know, like what is the purpose of a futures market? You know, way back when, so I, before we did this podcast, I went and looked at the history so that I had my details right. And it looks like the, the CBOT started trading grain futures contracts in the 1800s. The original purpose of that, actually, let's go way farther back than that. Let's think of like Egypt. When the pharaoh or whoever put a price on grain, the purpose was to motivate production. Farmers... Egyptian farmers in the way back in the prehistory of times when they were building the pyramids, nobody wants to go and put that risk of buying all the seed and buying the fertilizer and putting in all of that effort if you don't know that you're going to have a profitable price for it. So when Pharaoh set a set price for the grain, that was an innovation. That was a human society innovation because it made grain production more reliable. Uh, the next step, let's say, was like feudal Japan in the 1500s. That's when they started coming up with the idea of contracts that would represent like a, a piece of paper that would represent a basket of grain somewhere in a warehouse. That, again, was an innovation for human society because it allowed the feudal lords to trade representative pieces of paper and trade grain in that way. So in the United States, we started doing something similar in the CBOT in the 1800s. That's the purpose of it, is it allows people to 
trade, not physical grain. You don't have to actually put the grain on a train and get it to Chicago. You can just trade this piece of paper that's a financial contract that represents the value of that grain at a certain point in time. And that's that's why we do it. There are different people that are involved in the markets. You know, the the hedgers, the people who produce the grain, the, the people who market the grain, the people who use the grain. And then, like you said, the speculators. Why is it important to have that variety of people in the market? Yes. So the importance is if you just had farmers and you just had end users, you know, if the if the wheat milling contract guy was just going to the market, maybe once a year, he's going to go and set a price. Or maybe way back when Pharaoh only set the price for grain once a year. In that instance, the farmer may only have one opportunity to set a price on the grain. But it's much more beneficial for the farmer to have that opportunity every day because supply and demand does change globally or demand certainly changes from day to day. End users need this stuff every day. So to have more people participating in the markets gives you more opportunities to set prices day by day, minute by minute, millisecond by millisecond these days, right? Having more people participating, the end users and the speculators too, they add volume and they add liquidity to the markets. That's why it's important to have all of the different people because it gives more opportunities for the markets to set the price. Price discovery is finding the point where supply and demand meet, therefore setting a spot price. Elaine says the more people involved in price discovery, the better. I mean, it's sort of a philosophical question of whether grain markets are efficient or not. And efficiency in a market would mean that they actually do reflect all of the known information about what's going on in the supply and demand. I think they generally are. But you think of a day like today. So we're recording this uh, on February 9th, 2022. And uh, that's a day when the USDA is releasing one of their monthly rounds of supply and demand estimates. So that's new information coming into the market. And having that opportunity for everybody in the market to see that new information, to digest uh these opinions and projections from the economists at the USDA, that's an opportunity for the market to go in and see a change and set a new price. Let's talk a little bit about how the CBOT does its work. Um, and I think it's important, you know, it, it, everything is digital these days and, and CME has gone that way and that there's a lot of computers involved in trade. But I think it's important to take a step back, understand how things got started. You know, back when things got started, it was people around a pit, right? They were squawking back and forth and uh, there, there was actually a, a circle where this used to take place, right? Yeah, I mean, way back when, before they were even technically futures contracts, they would have just been forward contracts, just pieces of paper representing a train load of or car load of wheat in Peoria, right? Or a car load of corn in Springfield, or, you know, and, and then they would all get together in Chicago physically in the same room in the Chicago Board of Trade building on Wacker Street or Wacker Avenue or whatever it is. So then the evolution became from a forward contract that represented a specific chunk of grain to a futures contract, which represented the idea or just the price of general grain at a specific point in time. Again, those were traded, as you mentioned, by physical human beings all in the same room together. Uh, you, you used to see pictures of them, you know, and they had to get lots of emotion because they'd be selling things or buying things. 
or if you've ever seen the movie Trading Places, great movie, great Christmas movie. Um, that's, you know, a representation of everybody getting together in that high emotion scenario and trading the grain in that way and, and, and exchanging information in that way. But you're right that today, no longer, that's not the case. We're just exchanging information across the internet. And that's how the contracts are traded. When I got into the business about, you know, 22 years ago is when uh, there was still some pit trading. There was some computers going on. But talk about that pit trading, you know, the, the most recent, uh, how it was taking place. There was a lot of emotion. There's communication. There's yelling. There's hand signals. Uh, it was a pretty interesting thing to watch uh, as it took place, right? Yeah. And that was the best way to exchange information across across the network of everybody who's interested in the price of grain. Uh, when I started, we had a guy on the floor at the Board of Trade, and he used to call us up at DTN every day and give us, you know, the, the gossip and the rumors that had been going across on the floor. And that was true when I was a grain merchandiser, too. We had a guy who was on the floor who would call us up every day, and he would give us sort of the update of what was being passed around on the floor at the Board of Trade. And that was the only way you could get it, you know, before, I don't know, before fax machines or before you know, the internet before your messenger and Twitter. Yeah. So, so, so that was the most efficient way for everybody who has an interest in the price of grain to share what they know about maybe crop conditions are poor in North Dakota, or maybe, oh, there's suddenly a big push of, of purchases from China. All of these tidbits of information that influenced the price of grain, it all had to come together into one central location back in the day. So now give us your modern take uh, uh, at the CBOT today. How does grain trading take place? I think you just push a button on a computer and the, OK, so they have a big server that takes in information from everybody who wants to trade. They take in information, everybody who submits an order to buy a futures contract or a futures option or everybody who wants to sell a futures contract at a certain price at a certain time, and they match those orders together in a computerized process. Now, instantaneously, these contracts are traded with a computer. But Elaine says people have pointed out the downside of that technology. There's also some uh, argument about whether there's negative influence from people who are trading computers with a time advantage. So if you're trading these algorithmic trades that are very, very fast, milliseconds, you're buying and selling corn futures contracts every millisecond or every three milliseconds, that you can do it in some such a way you could spoof the market and make it look like there's actually market depth that isn't there, that there's more people willing to buy than is really there, for instance, and that can artificially drive up prices or drive down prices. And that's illegal. That's market manipulation. But it's a thing that can happen when you have just very fast computers putting in these buy and sell orders throughout the day. Yeah. And like you said, it's kind of a, a blind transaction that happens because it's a computer that's bringing buyer and seller together. But uh, and I know people are concerned about that, but should you be concerned about it? Does it matter or is the exchange doing its job? Is it doing price discovery even in kind of that blind way of doing things? Yeah, it's definitely doing price discovery. And it actually it, it's the same as it was when it was face to face. You didn't know who was on the other side of your of your trade, you knew which uh, broker was handling the other side of the trade, but you didn't know which client was on the other side of the trade. It's always been the purpose of the exchange to match a buyer and a seller blindly for this very reason that it takes out the, the counterparty risk.
Is the CBOT something that uh, a Nebraska farmer or an Iowa farmer, can they be a part of it? Can they just go and actively participate in activities on the Chicago Board of Trade? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have to open a brokerage account. There's lots of people who would, would, would open that up for you and give you access to do your own electronic trading. So you can sit at your own computer screen and click buttons and buy and sell as much as you want or preferably as little as you want, because each one of those buying and selling transactions will have trading fees and commission fees associated. So, so yeah, there's benefits to being a little bit parsimonious with your trading activity, but absolutely an individual bona fide hedger or an individual retail speculator can absolutely have direct access to these trading. There is one more step before you can trade. Elaine says you have to go through a broker who is licensed to actively trade in that space. They don't want people participating in these markets that aren't prepared or in a position, a financial position to be able to pay their margin calls. So there are regulations to make sure that that people are screened and are participating um, in a way that's not going to make everybody else go bankrupt, hopefully. Uh, just kind of your final thoughts about, you know, how the CBOT operates, uh, its purpose and, uh, you know, why it is so important to agriculture to have this mechanism continue to operate. Well, the, the fundamental purpose is to give a benchmark. You know, if you were just trading, if, if every farmer in Nebraska was only just trading with every elevator in Nebraska and every farmer in Pennsylvania was only trading with every elevator in Pennsylvania, there could be big discrepancies. I mean, the prices could be very different from one state to the next or one country to the next. There wouldn't be a global benchmark and it might not be fair. I mean, there would be big inefficiencies that someone could exploit. So by having a single global benchmark price, and then we base all of our local prices off of that benchmark, and we call that the basis, obviously. Um, but by having a benchmark price, there is global fairness in the grain markets. All right. Very good. Elaine, it's good to have you on with us on this episode. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. You bet. Thanks, Chad. Elaine Cobb is a market analyst and the author of Mastering the Grain Markets, How Profits Are Really Made. Thanks for joining us on today's Grain IQ. I'm Chad Moyer. Grain IQ is a production of the Nebraska Rural Radio Association with support from the Nebraska Soybean Board. It is brought to you in part by Nebraska Soybean Farmers and their checkoff. Grain IQ is hosted by Chad Moyer and produced by Rebel Saklocha. It is written and edited by Alex Wojcicki. Our project manager is Bryce Duskett. You can listen to Grain IQ on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or online at ruralradionetwork.com.